I wish I had some sort of magic formula for being able to build engineering teams cost-effectively, but I don't. Particularly at Hopskip Drive, the biggest thing is trust. You have to know that you can trust this person, not just because it helps you work more effectively together, but because our particular product and the service that we offer involves driving kids everywhere they need to go. The relationships that I've built with people on the engineering team and product teams and people across the company and the things that they've taught me, I think those are the, the things that are priceless. My name is Sophie Lee and I am the CTO of Hopskip Drive. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Sophie Lee built the platform that delivers your child to their destination as safe as possible. All this and more on Code Story. Sophie Lee was born in China, but grew up in a lot of countries and places. She grew up in Australia, lived all over Texas, and went to Harvard for undergrad, studying economics. She is an avid bike racer, mainly on the road, and a triathlete. The combination of living in different places, school, and racing led her into the tech world. In fact, she moved to San Francisco to race though she had taught herself to program post-college and had an idea brewing in her head on how to become a better engineer in San Fran. Sophie has been working on her current product for six and a half years, starting in a different company formerly known as Shuttle. The product was built originally to map out a trip from point A to point B and have a driver give a protected ride to a child. Four years ago, her current company acquired the product at which point she joined as CTO to lead the technology and information security team. This is the creation story of Hopskip Drive. So Hopskip Drive is a safety-focused and tech-enabled transportation solution built just for kids. So what this means is that we help schools, government agencies, families simplify their logistics and save them a lot of time I started working on this product six and a half years ago, actually at a different company called Shuttle, which was based in San Francisco. And then about four years ago, Hopskip Drive, which is based in Los Angeles, acquired Shuttle for its technology. And I came along and joined Hopskip Drive as CTO. The Shuttle product was identical to what exists now at Hopskip Drive. When I went from Shuttle to Hopskip Drive, we took all the apps, all the websites, everything, all the technology, and implemented it at Hopskip Drive and replaced everything that had been built up to that point. So Shuttle was also a transportation solution. At the time, though, Shuttle was focused only on families. It wasn't until I joined Hopskip Drive that we started to work with schools and, and government. Well, this will be really interesting then, because this is kind of a two inception stories, right? <laughs> yeah. From a shuttle standpoint and then from a hop, skip, drive standpoint. And they probably had, you know, their own sets of MVP type problems. Um, so I'll start with shuttle. So tell me about that, that first product, since you were one of the first engineers, tell me about that first product, how long it took to build and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. 
in terms of being able to just give a ride to go from point A to point B and have the driver be able to complete the trip, that took about a couple of months to actually have a full-fledged product where we could guarantee safety for the children and monitor all the rides. That took about a year for it to to reach something that I would consider a very high-functioning MVP. We built that original set of technology in Rails, Postgres. We were hosted on AWS. We had a couple of microservices written in Golang. We had four mobile apps, so a native Android and iOS app for parents to book their rides and another two for drivers to be able to complete their rides. So when when you're building MVPs, right, you got to make decisions and trade-offs. What sort of, you know, decisions and trade-offs do you remember from those early days of shuttle and how did you cope with those decisions? It's funny because during the early days you don't think about them as decisions because you're so resource strapped and time strapped that it seems like there is no other choice. One of the things that really stands out is that we had a very small team. We had quite a lot of the API that we needed to build out. We had two Ruby on Rails developers and one engineer who was not interested in learning Rails and he only wanted to build things in Golang. So what ended up happening is that there were a lot of parts of our API that got written in this different language that got written in Go just because it was the people and the talent that we had at the time. We didn't realize it, but this had a pretty large effect on the development of the technology and the evolution of our tech as time went on. And then I think the second trade-off that we made, which we also it wasn't a decision, we were just forced into it. We didn't have a tremendous amount of time to do any sort of design testing or user testing. All of the features that we built were basically the first version that the designer thought of and, and came up with and she was fantastic at what she did and so I think what we built was was really good in retrospect though it would have been great if we had laid out maybe a couple of different options to users and and picked the best iteration but like I said we just didn't have time to be able to do that Sure, that makes sense. I mean, in the early days, you're trying to get something out there quickly so that you can take that feedback and then iterate on it. So it's hard to it's hard to have the time to lay out, well, which one do you like first so we can get it right out of the gate? Is that right? Exactly. And in our particular business, high season is back to school. And so it's not like you can take an extra month if you want to. It's it's not really a choice. It's well, we have this hard deadline of mid-August and if you want to release any big new features, it has to be done by that time. So then, so you built this original product, you have a back end, you got mobile components, you've made the trade-offs and how did you progress the product from there and how did you mature it? And and what I'm really kind of looking for is how did you lay out that roadmap of what's the next most important thing to build? The biggest shift in how we progressed the product and the roadmap was that in the early days, and we still sometimes fall into this trap, we think that there are silver bullets. If only we build this particular feature, if only we add this particular website, it's going to transform the business and everything's going to be great. And I think we learned over time that there is no silver bullet. The size of our projects have actually shrunk over time. Some specific examples of this are in the early days we thought that if we added carpool to the product offering then it would change the unit economics of the business and everybody would use this feature and as it turns out carpool is not a particularly popular feature it's compared to some of the other things that we've built that have taken much less time in terms of how we've adapted to it 
We've started to instead take more of a, a, a business needs focused way of prioritizing our roadmap. So we look for opportunities that sprout up out of the business, oftentimes completely unexpected, unanticipated needs. And then we try to build a very small MVP to service that. So the first big shift uh, after I joined Hopskip Drive is that we really started to focus on working with schools and working with government agencies. The second particularly major evolution has been with COVID, you know, just working with schools and government, it, the size of the opportunity and the fact that it happened wasn't something that we could have predicted. What you were describing kind of early on about we thought, you know, this feature or this website is really going to revolutionize the business. Was it more of an engineering focused team early on and then as it shifted towards the latter days of shuttle early days of hop skip drive more business focused? In the early days, the way I would characterize our teams was that engineering and product did not work particularly closely together. The other thing was that the engineering and product teams weren't as dialed into what the actual problems and needs were of our customers and our internal teams as much as we could be. So you can just sort of imagine as two detached pods just floating in their own space coming up with their own priorities and roadmaps and then hoping that that'll be effective. I mean we were fairly effective in the beginning, but I think over time what changes that engineering and product we almost operate as a single team now in the level of collaboration that we have and the way that we plan. We focus so much on talking to our users, uh, both external and internal, to determine what our priorities should be. Well, let me double back a little bit then, because you mentioned part of this a bit. But tell me about the transition from shuttle to hop, skip, drive, and, and technology-wise, what did that look like? Did you have to build something new? What did it look like to replace all the products? Was it just kind of a, a total replacement, or was there integration? Walk me through some of that. So that was probably one of the most intense years of my life. So shuttle actually ran out of money, and that's the reason that we shut down. When that happened, I was convinced that I was never going to work on this product again. And the co-founder and CEO of Hopskip Drive reached out to me and remembered, you know, she was our biggest competitor. Never in a hundred years did I thought think that I would actually work with her. But she reached out and said, "Look, we really like what you've built at Shuttle." Would you be interested in a conversation? And we spoke, and basically within ten minutes of meeting Joanna, I knew that this was someone that I had to work with. It didn't take me very long. I think within a couple of days, I had signed a contract to move to LA and and work at Hopskip Drive. A week or two later, I was in the Airbnb with a couple of other engineers from Shuttle, and we were. <laughs> I, I basically changed my entire life to give this a second shot, essentially. And I knew that in the world of startups, you very rarely get a second chance. It's like you build something, you fail, and then you work on another thing. But we had built this thing; it had failed, and I had another chance. In terms of the transition itself, so a lot of great technology had also been built at Hopskip Drive, but there were a couple of serious scaling issues. So right now, the story we're in May of 2016. We knew that the existing technology at Hopskip Drive probably wouldn't be able to scale well enough to handle back to school in August, and so I made the somewhat aggressive decision to completely replace the technology that summer. 
there are other options like slowly transitioning over, running both systems at the same time. And I just knew that it would be too messy, too expensive, with too many risks to go that route. So we decided to just swap everything over. There were a lot of changes that we had to make to the product that came from Shuttle to accommodate a lot of the business requirements that were specific to Hopskip Drive. And then to dive even more deeply into specifics, you know, Shuttle was running on Postgres, Hopskip Drive was running on MongoDB, Shuttle was on Ruby on Rails. Hopskip Drive was on Node.js. Like they were just completely incompatible systems. But we made the product updates that were necessary. We migrated all of the data from Postgres into Mongo. It actually happened the other way around: Mongo into Postgres. If you've ever had to move data from a non-relational database into a relational database, I'm sure you can imagine the headaches. And、um, did that, ran that particular migration on July 4th, Independence Day, and、um, flipped the switch. Turn all the lights back on, and everything worked. It was great. That's not the normal story. You turned everything on, and it just worked. That's that's fantastic. I have some personal experience with migrating、uh, Mongo data to Postgres. That is a brutal, brutal transition. <laughs> so I'm sure there are some scars from that. <laughs> so then, was it before or after the? The shuttle consuming or or acquisition—I'm not sure how it played out—but shuttle coming over to Hopskip Drive, where you started to do the contract side of things or the school side of things, and did that change the product in any way? Oh, that that definitely changed the product. It was about a year after I had arrived at Hopskip Drive. The whole thing came out of like a Friday afternoon conversation. That I had with a member of a very small account management team because we were working with schools at the time.、Uh, it just wasn't a significant part of the business. This particular individual and I were just chatting. We were just getting a cup of coffee from the kitchen, basically. And she said, "You know, I talk to a lot of schools, and they tell me that they want a solution that is sort of like a school bus, where you pay at the beginning of a semester for basically a pass." And then the student can either show up or not show up, just like they do for a school bus. But they know ahead of time when and where they want to be picked up. And our product at the time was more of a: you pay per ride at the end of the ride. You have to be there if you schedule the ride, that sort of thing. And so over the weekend, I thought about it and realized that there were a couple of ways that we could tweak the、uh, existing product in a creative way to basically serve the needs of schools. And so the product team and I worked together. We came up with this time seriously an MVP. The whole thing was built maybe in a matter of weeks, and we started to sell it. And that was when we realized that we had hit on something big: that actually providing a school bus-like transportation service just might work. And from there, the MVP developed and evolved. We had our first sales team, and we really shifted our a lot of our focus over to, to helping schools and, and government agencies. We still serviced parents and the consumer side of our business, but we realized that this was a huge opportunity that we, we we couldn't pass up, and that we had the opportunity to help a lot more kids that we hadn't helped before. Did that change? I assume the product is cloud based. Did that change any of that, where you had to bring any of it on prem, or is it still all cloud based? So everything is all cloud-based.、Um, we're hosted on the Google Cloud platform. We did add a website specifically for our education customers to to be able to book and manage and monitor their rides. But the mobile apps、uh, 
everything else is still part of our product offerings. Well, let's switch over to team. Um, and this probably will straddle shuttle and hop, skip, drive. But how did you go about building your team? And I think what I'm most interested in is what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? Well, I wish I had some sort of magic formula for being able to build engineering teams cost effectively, but I don't. We had a couple of people come in through referrals. Uh, We had more people than I would like come in through recruiters. And I say that because recruiters are really expensive. So that's how we, we built out the team. And then in terms of what qualities I looked for as I built the team, I think this also evolved over time. But particularly at Hop, Skip, Drive, the biggest thing is trust. You have to know that you can trust this person, not just because it helps you work more effectively together, but because our particular product and the service that we offer involves driving kids everywhere they need to go. I have a little brother who's a lot younger than me. At the end of the day, I think to myself, is this somebody who I would be willing to have take care of my little brother? That's really how I think about it. Because if I can say yes to that question, then I know that I have enough trust in this person to be able to work on our technology. In terms of other traits, I look for someone who has great communication skills, communicates clearly um, and honestly. I look for people from very different backgrounds, not just in terms of typical demographics, but also the types of companies that they've worked at, just because I, I want to foster a lot of debate and disagreement when it comes to figuring out the best solution for our technology. I look for integrity. Is this someone who is going to do what they say? And are they going to clean up their messes? Are they going to take responsibility for not just their successes and their failures? Finally, if if all those things check out, I look for someone who can write clean, efficient code. So our entire hiring process has been iterated on almost like software itself. Throughout the entire interview process, it's full of questions and challenges that very closely resemble what they would actually be doing on the job. So there's very little theoretical questioning, very little whiteboarding or anything like that, because you don't whiteboard code when you actually you know, work on an engineering team. It's funny, one of the coding challenges, it always correlates with how they code further down the line. The best solution for this particular challenge, you can write in a couple of lines. And so at a glance, if, if I look at the file and I see that they submitted this you know, 50 to 100 line solution, I, I know that that's going to also play out in the way that they write code for us on the team. And it's almost always an automatic rejection. I'm, I'm curious of those you know, characteristics that you look for in those people. How do you how do you maintain or build and maintain that team culture where those characteristics can flourish, meaning you have people that are from different backgrounds, different experiences to where you can have people that are going to debate the right solution. How do you foster that type of culture? I think through two things. Uh, The first is that I think the way that a team operates flows directly from what the leader of the team does. And I've done a lot of work probably hundreds or maybe even a few thousand hours of coaching, of courses to work on my own communication and my own blocks and beliefs that prevent me from being all of those things that I just described. And I think that if the leader of a team is able to exhibit those behaviors, then it's a lot easier for the team to exhibit those behaviors. And then the second thing is a lot more structural. So 
We've built in a couple of very lightweight meetings that basically foster this particular way of operating. So we have a retrospective every two weeks, but the retrospective is designed in a very specific way. You know, even in the agenda, there's no blaming or finger pointing in the retrospectives. A different person runs the retrospectives every two weeks. It's action item oriented. There's no complaining. If you bring up a topic, be also prepared to bring up some solutions, that sort of thing. We have a very robust postmortem process. It's it's robust, but it's simple. Then, in all honesty, I modeled after a talk that I heard from a Google SRE team, and it's also about a blameless culture where you take responsibility. And when something goes wrong, you bring it up immediately. And what are the action items to make sure that we don't repeat this in the future? I mean, none of these are particularly revolutionary, and I think a lot of teams do it, but. We make these the staples of how the team operates when things go wrong. So I think that everyone can get along and be happy when we're all in agreement and things are great and everyone's in a good mood and we've all had lunch and you know coffee and whatever. But it's when someone breaks production or you launch a feature and it completely flops. I think that's when the character of a team is forged. And so these particular regular. Meetings that we have and processes that we have are there so that we we catch these situations and make sure that we respond to them in a way that's productive and supportive of the team and yeah just continuously makes the team better and better. Let's switch over to scalability a little bit. You touched on this with Shuttle being having a couple of microservices in the beginning, but I'm curious at, at how it evolved and and you touched on it a little bit with the hop skip drive transition, but. Did you build this to scale efficiently in the beginning, or were you fighting this as you grew? I would say a little bit of both. The biggest trade-off I think for an early startup company is you can build it perfectly to scale, and what you'll probably end up doing is overbuilding, and you may not even have the scale that you're anticipating because, say, the product that you built isn't the right one. I will say that we were lucky in that. A couple of the early members of the team had come from larger companies where they had to work on scaling issues, and so we didn't make any of the obvious scaling mistakes that we could have. So as the product grew and ride volume grew, we dodged a lot of bullets, so to speak. And then as time progressed and we found product market fit, we started building again processes outside the whims of individuals and the judgments of individuals. With things like regular load testing, we use uh, application performance management tools.、Uh, we use New Relic, and that's the sort of thing where you let the technology and your tools prevent you from causing major scaling issues.、Uh, you don't. You just can't rely on people making the right judgment every time they push a line of code. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I think. What I'm most proud of is the team that I've built and the culture that we have. You know, in the world of startups, you really don't know whether the product is going to still be around five years or ten years from now. We do the best job that we can, but who knows what's going to happen? The relationships that I've built with people on the engineering team、uh, and product teams and people across the company and the things that they've taught me. I think those are the the things that are priceless, and working on myself so that I'm open to having my mind changed and grow as much as possible from being around a group of amazing people. I think that's what I'm proudest, most proudest of. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. 
So there was, we never deploy on weekends, but there's this thing with daylight savings time where we have to deploy on a weekend twice a year. And I basically deployed the wrong branch. I merged the wrong branch and therefore deployed the wrong commits into production. Fortunately, all the stuff that was deployed to production, which at this point had been untested, was all written really well. So there were no bugs in production, but it could have caused a fire. We could have had a bunch of bugs that people wouldn't have been able to respond to early on a Sunday morning. Yeah, it's probably the worst thing. I've done a lot of, I've made a lot of mistakes, so that's probably the worst one I've made in a while. I think every engineer can relate to that uh, weekend weekend releases. I, I feel your pain there. I think we, we all do. <laughs> what does the future look like for the product and for your team? I wish I could predict the future. I feel like there's so much uncertainty right now, especially with COVID. I can say what I would love for the future to look like, uh, which is, you know, we're able to find a vaccine. It's effective. We get this pandemic under control and we're able to just continue serving as many families and foster kids and, and, and kids from all different backgrounds as we can to get where they need to go and have all the opportunities that they need to develop and succeed. And then for the team, you know, I, I just hope that we continue to learn and grow uh, just by being around each other. Let's switch to you, Sophie. Who influences the way that you work, be it a CTO, CEO, architect, really any person? Name a person that you look up to and why. The person I look most up to is my mom. Uh, I, I know it's a little bit cliche, and I wish that there were a specific CEO or someone of a similar background that I could point to, but it just always comes back to her. Her work ethic, her integrity, her impeccability, her respect of her colleagues, her this sense of right and wrong and always choosing to do the right thing, even though it's sometimes harder or more expensive than doing the wrong thing. It's what guides my decision-making every single day. And I think that those traits and those characteristics guide my work far more than anything that's, you know, a, a particular way of running retrospectives or organizing a team or anything like that. I think, I think those characteristics um, are super fundamental and those are the things that influence me the most. So if you could go back to the beginning, either shuttle or the merge with hop, skip, drive, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? You know, I've thought about this question a lot and I think at the end of the day, I, I wouldn't change a single thing. So if you've read the book, Black Swan, the writer Nassim Taleb goes into a lot of detail about how hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's very easy for us to fit retrofit narratives onto how things happened in the past and then develop the sort of illusion that if only we had done something differently or if only we do something differently in the future, we could have controlled outcomes. And at the end of the day, the narratives are an illusion and this kind of control is also an illusion. I think that a lot of the mistakes that my team and I made, a lot of the things that went wrong, even shuttle shutting down. At the time, I wish I could have stopped that. I wish that the company didn't shut down. But some of the things that seem the worst end up being the best things that could have possibly happened for, you know, where we are today. So I wouldn't change a thing. I don't think I have the wisdom and I don't have the arrogance to believe that I have the wisdom to know what could have changed in the past to, to make for a better present moment. 
Last question, Sophie. You're getting on a plane, and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who has built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I would say to work on yourself. I think that this looks different for different people, but the baggage that most of us by default drag from the past into where we are now is a bigger obstacle and impediment than anything external, whether it be difficulty of finding a Go programmer in Los Angeles or finding funding. All of those things are solvable problems, and I think anyone with enough determination can figure it out. The thing that's often in our blind spot and prevents us from actually fixing these very solvable problems are the things that we're dealing with inside ourselves, the voices in our heads, um, the things that have happened to us in the past. So I would say before you try and go and change the world, spend a little bit of time, spend a little bit of money to work on yourself because it'll pay bigger dividends than anything else that then you could work on. That's fantastic advice. Well, Sophie, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Shuttle and Hop, Skip, Drive. Thank you. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.